Um, If you have your Bible, go ahead and go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. We've been in a series called Songs of Hope. As we look back at some of the key psalms in our Old Testament, psalms um, that are meant to bring us hope, that portray uh, maybe a person or a people that are hurting, they're frustrated, they're anxious, they are in fear, and it is God who brings us hope. And so today, we are in a very heavy psalm, uh, Psalm 22. And so I'm going to read it for you in, our, in its entirety, and then I'm going to read you one other text from Mark, and then we will pray. Psalm 22. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths of me. They wag their head, heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in the Lord. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard When he cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before you. Those who fear him, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever and all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. 
all the prosperous of the earth, earth eat and worship before him, shall, go, shall bow all who go down to the dust, every, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Now they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. And then Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I want to start out our morning by asking a a pretty heavy question, because it's a heavy text, so um, pretty heavy question. But the question is, have you ever felt abandoned before? Have you ever... Pam says yes. Um, have you ever felt abandoned before? My suspicion is that most of us in here, pretty much everyone probably, can say yes to that question in some sort of way. Some, my, some moments might be small, like I remember as a young kid watching The Lion King and seeing Mufasa be betrayed by Scar and then Simba gets exiled and I cried like a baby. I still think about that today, but I felt abandoned as a kid because of the Lion King. But there are also moments of deep anguish in life, deep anguish and hurts. And there are many moments in life, and I'm sure it's the same for a lot of us in here, where you felt abandoned, where you felt alone, where you felt betrayed by someone that you love, someone that you respected. And for some in here right now, there have been moments, maybe it's even right now, where you felt abandoned by God. That even though you suffered, it felt like God did not care, that in your moment of need, he did not help you. And today, we're going to see a moment in the life of Jesus where he felt that very thing. He felt that his father had abandoned him. And as we enter into Holy Week in preparation for Resurrection Sunday, it would do us good to look at the darkest moment of our Savior's life and ask the question, why? What happened in that moment? What can we learn from our Savior when he felt abandoned? Because most people, not just followers of Christ, know the words that Jesus uttered on the cross. They know it's one of the most famous lines in all of human history. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So as we approach Resurrection Sunday, it would be good for us to ask the question, okay, why did he say that? Why did he say that? It's a good question to ask because there are some out there who would say that that cry from Jesus was evidence that he wasn't God. Um, That when life got really hard, that this man who preached hope lost hope right at the very end, that that cry from Jesus was actually a cry of defeat right before his death. So we have to figure out, okay, why did Jesus say that? Why did he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a theological question. It has implications for how we understand who God is and how we understand how he works, how he relates to sin, how he relates to suffering. But it's not just theological, it's also personal. Because we have to honestly ask the question, if Jesus was the best humanity had to offer, if he was the only sinless one, if he was truly the Messiah and in his greatest moment of need, God abandoned him, then what hope do we have? If he abandoned Jesus then who am I to think that he won't abandon me? It's a good question to ask. And Psalm 22 is going to help us answer 
that question, if you didn't catch it when I read our two texts today, when Jesus said those words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't just some random phrase. He was quoting Psalm 22, which begs another question. Why? When all of sin was laid on him, when his father abandoned him, why did he quote Psalm 22? Psalm 22 is often referred to as the song of the innocent sufferer. It is believed to be written by David, probably written about a thousand years before Jesus was born. And this psalm will give us insight as to why he chose to quote this psalm on the cross. And it's going to help us understand why we suffer and what to do when we suffer. And so he starts off in verse one and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And we have to ask the question here, okay, what is really bothering this person? Like, what's the core issue? Because if you read through the rest of the psalm, you see two things. One, this dude was in like serious physical pain. Like it's legit pain. It's not just emotional. There's physical things happening here. And two, this guy feels betrayed and he feels rejected by those around him. But if you look in verse one, he doesn't mention either one of those things. So what's really bothering this person? What's at the heart of his distress? He doesn't mention the physical. He doesn't mention the rejection. What bothers him the most is that he feels like God has abandoned him. That's what he feels like. That there, <laughs> there is some kind of disconnect between what this guy knows about God and what he's actually experiencing, that his theology isn't matching out what's playing out around him. Three times he refers to God as my God. And it's the picture we see all the time in scripture that you are God, you are sovereign, you hold all authority, you are creator, you're the alpha, the beginning, you're the omega, you're the end, but you're also intimate. We are in relationship. We are in covenant with one another. We aren't strangers. Later, he calls him Yahweh, the covenant name of God, that God is intimate with him. And within that covenant, the people of God understood that God had two primary roles. One, it was to be protector. And two, it was to be provider. But he looks around in the midst of the crisis and he says, where are you? I need protection. I need provision. You promised me that you would not leave me. So God, where are you? It's deep anguish that his theology about God and what God is allowing, allowing to happen around him, those things aren't matching up and it's causing a lot of distress in this guy. Life is falling apart, so I'm gonna run after you, only for you to reject me. So I wanna pause and ask a question here. Um, is this you? Like, can you identify with verse one here, verse one and two? Like, do you feel that? That in this moment in your life, you feel abandoned. You feel abandoned by God specifically. That when you think about what you know about God, your theology, and then you look around at your circumstances and you would go, yeah, this doesn't match up. I don't, I don't understand God. I, I don't see you, that you are asking the question, God, why have you forsaken me? And if you answered yes to that question, I want you to legitimately ask it and answer it in your head, I want you to do something. I want you to either 
write in your journal or notepad, or if you don't have paper, write in your phone, notes app or Evernote or whatever you use, but I want you to write somewhere, my God, why have you abandoned me? If that's you. My God, why have you abandoned me? And I want to sit on that for a little bit, and we're going to come back to you. And so what the psalmist does in verse 3 is he begins to think about what he knows about God. He begins to press into his theology. So here's this man who is trying to understand why God is forsaking him, and he's trying to understand what is happening to him, to him and it's beautiful. Like, we get to watch this person run through what they know right in front of us. And the first thing they tackle is this reality that God's abandonment of them might be a reflection of who God is. Like they are asking the question, did I misunderstand who God is? And is that why this is happening to me? And essentially he says, no, because in verse three, they say, yet you are holy. They say, you're perfect. You're blameless. You are everything that is right. You do not sin. You do not go back on your word. There isn't some kind of character flaw in you. And then he says, you're enthroned on the praises of Israel. That's him saying, you hear the prayers of your people, that you aren't disconnected from your people. You're king and you're forever connected with us. So you're holy, you reign on your throne, and you hear our prayers. So he's like, it's not a problem with my understanding of God. So then he starts to walk through and think through history. He says in verse four, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So he looks back and he recognizes that when others have been in crisis, God has come through for them. In verse four and five, three times he says that the people trusted. Our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you they trusted. And three times God answered, you delivered them. They cried and were rescued. They trusted and were not put to shame. So you can see this, this person kind of working through it. Is there a problem with God? Well, no, he's perfect, he's holy, he's good. And then he looks back at the past and he recognizes that God has come through for others historically. And that reality just serves to stress this guy out more that there's some kind of disconnect here because I know you're holy. I know that you were present for those in the past, but for me, you seem to be absent. And we've all been in moments like that too. God, I know you, and I know what you've done in the past, and that doesn't explain why you are abandoning me right now. And his thought process is, okay, if it's not a problem with God, and it's not a problem with history, then it's a problem with me. Maybe I'm the problem. So he says in verse six, but I am a worm and not a man. He says, maybe you don't see me as one of your covenant people. And if you don't see me as one of your people, then maybe it's just that I don't matter to you. That's what he says. And when we see walk, people walk away from their faith, it's usually because of a moment like this, where it seems like God is absent from their circumstances. And it, their conclusion is, either God doesn't exist, he isn't who he says he is, or he just doesn't care about me. I remember when I was a college minister um, and I was meeting with a 19-year-old student at Sol de Jaliscos in a booth on the right. And that student said, either God doesn't exist or he doesn't care about me, so either way, I'm out. 
His name was Shane. Still think about and pray for him. And some of you have felt that the way that he did, essentially he says, God must not care. He just doesn't care. And not only does God not care, but the people around me despise me for crying out to you. He says, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths of me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. So instead of people coming around him to encourage him, they mock him. They don't help him. And so the first problem is that God is silent. And the second problem is that people can be cruel. That unfortunately, it's natural for people to either to, to ignore others when they are hurt, either out of fear of vulnerability or a claim of ignorance. Well, I didn't know you were going through that. Or sometimes people are just cruel because sin has wired us to be cruel. Example, social media, the internet, right? That people like to kick others when they are down. And I think you can say here, well, why does this person care what other people say? We're not supposed to care what other people say. Well, think about this moment. I think in this moment, this guy probably feels like there's some truth in what others are saying. Like this guy claims that he belongs to God, but it seems like God has abandoned him. So their mockery can feel like it has some truth in it. And this guy continues to process, right? So he continues to process. He flips back again. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you, I was cast from my birth. He says, you all right, you may not care about me, but that's not what you've shown me in the past. He looks back at his own life and he says, you made me trust. Like you caused this in me. And since the moment I was born, you have been my God. And so he wrestles with all these realities. God is holy. Okay, it's not a problem with God. God was there for my forefathers, okay? He's come through for others. I'm a worm, I'm worthless, but you know what? I'm his worthless worm, right? He says, I'm his. He's been with me since the moment I was born. You know what's beautiful about this moment? It's the holy ambition to wrestle with God. It's beautiful. That honesty with God does not scare this man. He's not afraid to wrestle with who God is and wrestle with who he is, and just in case you didn't know this, you're allowed to talk to God with honesty, to tell God that you doubt him, that you doubt his plan, that you doubt his presence. That's not an unbiblical idea. The scriptures are covered with people who wrestle with God. He's not afraid of it. Talk to him. He wants to hear your heart, to hear your pain, to where you struggle theologically, to hear where you struggle relationally, there is a beautiful holiness in a wrestling with God. And the psalmist here in this moment will not just accept a reality that God has abandoned him. He won't accept it. Too many times we accept the lie that God has abandoned us as just truth. And he says something beautiful in verse 11. He says, be not far from me. Be not far from me. You know what's interesting about this? He doesn't ask God, hey, fix my problems. He doesn't tell him to fix his problem. He says, be with me. <laughs> That's what he says. Come near me. In the midst of his suffering and his wrestling, he doesn't move away from God. He moves towards God. So when Jesus says, think about it. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a reflection of a lack of hope. It's actually a declaration of hope. 
He's saying that because he's engaging his father, that in the moment that our sin fell on him, in the moment that our sin fell on him and the father had to remove his presence from his son, he had to do that. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that the father could not compromise his holiness. He couldn't do it. He's not going to compromise his character. In order for the full atonement of our sin to be paid for, it had to be laid on an innocent sufferer. And when that happened, Jesus and his father were separated for the first time in existence. For the first time that Jesus had never experienced a moment without the love and communion of the father. And in this moment, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, I think, because he is discontent with the reality that God is far from him. It wasn't as if Jesus didn't know this was going to happen. Like he knew he was going to the cross. He knew that he was going to die. He knew that our sins were going to be laid on him. He told people that it was going to happen. But I think it's in his discontentment that he cries out, essentially saying, why is this taking so long? Why is this taking so long? It wasn't for a second that he was on the cross or even minutes. It was for hours that he was separated from his father. My God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why isn't this over yet? I think that's what's happening. That I believe in Psalm 22 and when Jesus cries out on the cross, it's not a call for an explanation, but it's a call for action. They aren't asking God to explain, but rather they're asking for God to come near. And we do this all the time. When I worked with youth, I I would do this. um, I'm sure you do it with your kids. Why are you crying? Well, you're not actually asking them to explain where they're crying. You just want them to what? Stop crying, right? We would take these uh, youth out to pick up trash along the highway, and these kids would get out there, and they'd say, I'm gross, I'm tired, I'm hungry. I'd say, why are you complaining? I didn't actually want them to explain. I just wanted them to stop complaining. I'm asking why, but what I really mean is stop. And here in this moment, the question is asked, why are you forsaking me? But what he really wants is not an explanation, but action. Be not far from me. And we are meant to talk to God like this. The psalmist prays with honesty. Jesus prays like this, and we are meant to pray like this, that in the midst of our pain, confusion, anxiety, that we would say, God, be near me. You would say that to your spouse, right? I don't, I don't want an explanation. I just want you, be close to me. Be near me. Know me. And it's interesting, after verse 12, it gets weird, Okay? Like verses 1 through 11, we can track with that. We can relate to that kind of suffering. But after verse 12, we quickly realize, no, what this guy went through was like way worse than anything I've ever gone through. And we realize there is something else happening in this psalm because it gets strangely specific starting in verse 12. He says, bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. So he pictures the people tormenting him as animals. And you say, well, why animals? Well, animals have power, but they have no conscience, right? And it says, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. Um, and you're like, okay, what is that about? Well, you ever get done with a workout? Some of you, 
right? You ever get done with the workout and you're like, man, my legs feel like jello. You ever said that? They didn't have jello in 1000 BC. So he says, I'm poured out like water. I've, I've lost my strength. I've, I've lost my structure. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. I'm, I'm like a plant without water. I'm shriveling up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. I'm thirsty. My mouth is dry. And then he says, you lay me in the dust of death. You notice the pronoun change there. There's a shift. He says, they open wide their mouths at me. He says, enemies are surrounding me. But then he says, you lay me in the dust of death. What's that about? It's this dual reality that there are people doing this to me, but also God is involved somehow which seems weird, right? Suffering, suffering is happening, but ultimately it is God who lays him in the dust of death. That this is happening because God ordained it. And you say, well, why? Remember, this psalm is known as the song of the innocent sufferer. That it was purposed by God that an innocent one would suffer at the hands of the very people he would save. And it becomes plain obvious. And the next few verses, what's happening here? He says, in 16, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. That means that my body is stretched out and I can literally see all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And you're like, okay, I've heard this before. This seems familiar, and this is, would be a good point to remind you that this was written a thousand years, a thousand years before Jesus hung on the cross. That's like the Romans describing the iPhone. Well, you hold it like this to take a selfie, right? It just doesn't make sense. And it becomes obvious as to why Jesus chose this psalm to quote while he hung on the cross that as his family and his disciples watched their Christ suffer and die, he wanted to remind them, no, there's purpose in this. He wanted them to understand, understand the significance of what was happening in that moment. And let me tell you, they got it. Because as you read through the gospels, they are sure to emphasize the things of Psalm 22, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include the details of what we just read. As they recounted what happened on the cross, that they're sure to declare, no, I saw this. I saw Psalm 22 play out right in front of me. And so I just want to show you, there's gonna be some things on the screen and I just want to read through you everything that the, the significance of what happens here. That as they realize no, this is Psalm 22. They wrote it down. In verse seven, it says, he talks about how they mock me. He says, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And then in Matthew 27, 29, it says, in twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, hail, king of the Jews. Matthew 27, 39, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Mark 15, 29, and those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads. Psalm 22, 8, he who, he who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in the Lord. Matthew 27, 42, he saved others. He cannot save himself. 
He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my mouth sticks to my, jaw, uh, my jaws. John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And then Psalm twenty two eighteen, they divide my garments among them. Matthew 27, 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Mark 15, 24, they crucified him and they divided his garments, casting lots for them. Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do and they cast lots to divide his garments. John 19, they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots. And then verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in Matthew 27, 46, the ninth hour, ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus is reminding his disciples in the midst of their suffering, when everything was falling apart, that they would remember, no, God said that this would happen. He declared that it would happen. That maybe there is some purpose to all of this. And I hope that there is some comfort in that. And look, no one will ever be able to explain to you why you suffer. They won't. Like, why does God allow suffering? One of the big questions of the universe. Why does he allow us to suffer? Look, I'm going to be honest, I have no idea. I, I, I don't know. I mean, God gives us some clues and we can have a conversation about it, but no one will be ever to give you such a clear, logical explanation where you go, okay, that makes sense. And I'm good with it. Like there's things that can help us but no one's ever going to be able to make you feel satisfied with the reality that you lost that loved one, that you got cancer, that that person betrayed you. I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I know. He is near to you in the midst of your suffering. He will bring you salvation. He may not save you from your circumstances, but he will save your soul for eternity, and he will bring you joy in the midst of that suffering. And in verse 19 and 20, we see the psalmist still asking for help. He says, do not be far off. Come quickly, save me. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if you caught it, but in the middle of verse 21, he says, you have rescued me. <laughs> Do you notice that? And you go, wait, what? When did that happen? Don't be far off. Come quickly. Save me. Saved. And you're like, when? When did that happen? And he uses the perfect tense of the verb. It's done. And I read commentaries this week trying to figure out what was happening in verse 21. And all of them are like, I don't know. Like, bro, I don't know what happened. I don't know what to tell you. But all of a sudden, he is surrounded by the brothers. He's in pain. He's in anguish. And then he's Saved, he says in 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then he says in verse 24, do not miss it. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. That all of a sudden he's with his brothers. He said, I thought that he had abandoned me, but he didn't. He hasn't hidden his face from me. He heard me when I cried to him. And then he says in verse 26, the afflicted 
shall eat and be satisfied. He says the afflicted, he uses the plural of the word, and I love this picture, that there is a banquet, and around that banquet table are all the afflicted, that those who suffered will be satisfied and they will praise the Lord. And it's the reality that within this room, there are many who would say right now, my God, you have abandoned me. I cry out to you and I hear nothing. But also at the very same time in this room, there are those who would say, yeah, I know what that's like. I know what that's like. I've been there. I thought God had abandoned me, but he didn't. I thought he didn't hear me, but he did. I cried out to him and I thought he wasn't gonna answer, but he did. And so many of you have a story to tell how you were in despair, right? How you were in despair. And now you look back and you go, I thought he had abandoned me, but he didn't. He was near to you. So if that's you, if you are someone who would say to a person, yeah, I know what that's like. I know what it feels like to be abandoned by God. And you would say, I want to walk with people. I want to walk with people who feel like God has abandoned them. That you would say right now that you have the time and the desire to sit with someone and just let them talk honestly about their circumstances. Talk honestly about God. That you have the time and the desire to do that. I want to invite you to do something If that's you, if you would say, I have the time and the desire to sit with people who feel like they are abandoned by God, I want to actually invite you to stand up. So if you're one of those people who say, I have the time and the desire and I want to hear your story, I want to invite you to stand up. Now, if you are one of those people who wrote, God, why have you abandoned me? I want you to look around the room. And I want you to ask God a question. Like legitimately ask him this question. God, who in this room do you want me to walk with? Like I want you to ask that question, then I want you to listen. Just listen. God, who do you want me to walk with? I'm going to give you a moment to do that. If you're standing, maybe do a twirl so that people can see your face. I'm serious. Like, like let people see your face, especially if you're in the front. Um, all right. Who did the Holy Spirit tell you to talk with? No, stay standing. Ah, we're not done yet. <laughs> we're not done. Uh, you, may not have, you, you may not have heard an audible voice. But as you looked around, did someone's name come to mind? Trust that thought. Trust that that is God leading you. And you may not even know their name. Like you may be like, okay, the lady with the blonde hair. Or you may be like the dude with the ugly shirt, Rich, right? Like you may not even know their name. You may not know their name, but who? Who? Um, If you're standing, I would ask that you linger a little bit after the service, just in case um, God's leading someone to talk. You can be seated now. Thank you. The reality is, 
Many have been where you are. Many have been where you are. And my prayer is that one day you will be in the position to look at someone else and say, I've been where you are. I know. I want to listen. I want to pray. And so the psalmist ends the psalm by reminding us that God will have victory in praise. That's next week as we talk about the resurrection. That because of what the innocent sufferer did, that all peoples and all nations will be gathered in his name, all the afflicted. And we look forward to that day, to the day to dwell in a place where there is no suffering, where we no longer have to wrestle with God. But for now, we have this encouragement out of Hebrews 4, verse 15. I want you to listen to this. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like, look, you can't say to God, you don't know what this is like. <laughs> like, you can't say to him, you don't know what it's like to be abandoned. You don't know what it's like to feel pain. You don't know what it's like to feel mocked. You don't know what this is like. You, like, you can't say that to him because he does. He knows what it's like. He knows exactly what it's like. And he sympathizes with you. He's tender with you because he knows what you're going through. And so my prayer for us as a family, as the people of God, is that with confidence, with confidence, you would draw near to his throne of grace. And that when you get there, you would receive mercy and you would find help in your time of need.